Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Liberty Weekly Podcast. This one is episode 136, and correspondingly, the show notes may be found at libertyweekly.net forward slash 136. And today, I have the great honor of being joined by Stefan Kinsella. Stefan Kinsella is a practicing patent attorney in Houston, director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom, and editor of the Libertarian Papers. And correct me if I'm wrong, Stefan, but you're also student, a student of Hans-Hermann Hoppe. Is that right? Uh, I am a student of Hans-Hermann Hoppe, um, as we should be. Yes, definitely. Myself included. Um, but my understanding is you have a forthcoming book called Law in a Libertarian World. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Oh, this is a book. Uh, it's just an edited collection of my essays, some of my essays from the last 20, 23 or so years. Uh, I've been working on it for a while. Um, I think it's pretty systematic and integrated. It's not like a systematic treatise, but it, I think it reads a little bit like that. So yeah, it should be out in about six months, three, four months. I've been saying that for about eight or nine years now, but I think it's really picked up steam. So yeah, I think I will get it out soon. That's excellent. Yeah, I'm definitely definitely waiting for that one, and um, I'll – I want to put in the show notes page where the listeners can find your updates on it because you already have a chapter list that's up on your website. Yeah, everything is basically published already. It's just uh, I'm going to slightly edit it and tweak it. And uh, yeah, so stephanconsella.com slash LLW, Law in a Libertarian World. Some people hate my title. At this point, I don't care. (laughs) I'm just going to do it. Some people hate my cover which I've already kind of come out with, so I don't care. Uh, read it if you want. I don't care if I make money on it. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be out for free in every format known to man because I'm anti-IP and I'm not doing this for money. Um, actually, I'm not sure why I'm doing it because all the articles are already out there, and you can go read them if you want, and most people have already read them. Some people want a, a book in their hand. It's, it's strange. I get these people pester me. When it, when's your book coming out? I'm like, well, you're a fan. You've already read all the stuff. But uh, some people like a collection of essays. Um, I'm going the self-publishing route even though I could I could go with an academic or another publisher. But I don't want the control. I don't want the delay. I don't want the hassle. I don't need the prestige. Um, so, yeah. yeah well, I, it's I, coming out. I certainly am. I'm the worst. I'm the worst self promoter in the world. <laughs> I'm not going to do a blurb on the back cover. I'm not going to have someone do an introduction. I'm not trying to sell it. I don't care if you buy it. <laughs> you can have it for free. I'm the worst self promoter in the world. <laughs> well, um, I'm certainly one of those people that likes to have something to hold in your hand, like a nice right. coffee table book or what have you. Um, right. One question I had for you was kind of a more personal question, but. Between your your practice and your family, when when do you find time to work on projects like uh, papers? Or I also understand that you published like a, a practice guide, like kind of a treatise with a co-author. I don't have the name in front of me. My apologies. Oh yeah, that was uh, I published that. Um, that was um, well. In my my career um, has well. I'm a lawyer. I'm a practicing attorney. And my career has been at big firms and at corporate practice, and now self practice. Um, and you know, lawyers tend to have different ways of of doing things in their practice, right? They'll do 
pro bono. They'll do speaking. They'll do um, uh, business development in different types of ways. Um, I've done my own version of that, and that has involved uh, um, academic and scholarly writing and the intellectual side of things. And some of it has involved legal writing, like writing as a lawyer, like a lawyer per se. Um, and that has involved writing on practical topics and on legal scholarly topics, like things that only lawyers write about and read about, like judges and uh, academics, um, and things that only libertarians and philosophers and libertarian lunatics like us yeah. think about and write about. So I've sort of dovetailed these things in my avocation, my hobbies. Um, so that that book was a book from Oxford University Press, which is sort of a feather in my cap. It, it could have helped my career if I had if I had made more of my career in that field of international arbitration, I only did a little bit of that, and I'm at the end of my career really because I'm quasi-retired now, and I'm a patent lawyer. I'm not really an international arbitration guy. Um, I studied that field. I wrote in that field. I published in that field. Um, uh, I made my mark in that field in some of the publishing world. Um as for the time, you know, when I was younger, I had more energy, and I didn't have kids yet. You and I were talking about that before we started recording. Um, I have a, a wife and a family, and you know, you you find a you find a balance. If you're successful, you find a balance. Um, you blend all these things: family, business, life, you know, intellectual pursuits, me time, whatever. Um, and you blend it all, and it can be a nice life if you do it all right. Um, this last thing was more like I did something when I was younger and more hungry and vigorous, and didn't have a kid yet, or he was a young kid, and I, you know, I had lots of free time, and I was still trying to figure out which type of, you know, when you're younger in your career. You have two or three or four or five things open to you, right? It's opportunity cost. You don't know what you're going to do yet in your career. So you have one or two or three or four things open to you. Over time, they start being closed as you pursue A over B, right? Um, but you keep a few open to you if you're smart, right? Um, so I did that with international law. Like, so I became a patent lawyer, but at, at the, in the beginning, I was like, maybe I'll be international law, maybe I'll be a, a law professor, maybe I'll be an academic, maybe I'll be a Cato Institute, you know, uh, think tank scholar. You know, I, I kept all these irons in the fire kind of thing. But over time, you see where your career is going, what choices you've made that foreclose others, and. Yeah, but so I had written this book in '98 on international uh, investment law, and I just like the field, and I'm still interested in it. But my career is not going that way. However, it was time to update the book, and I just wanted to see it updated. 
So I got a wrangled two or three other scholars who are young and upcoming and who could use that for their career. So I got them to say, hey, become a co-author with me, and you can take the stuff I did early on, and we can get Oxford to, to, to publish it, and it will be a feather in your cap and advance your career. So that book just came out. Um, that's the long and short of it. So that book just came out. Now, that's for money actually. Now, it won't make me a lot of money. It may be some money. It was worth me doing it. I got my co-authors to do most of the work to update it, um, and I just find it interesting. And It was just like a shame to let it go to waste, like this good book from like 15, 10 years ago that could be updated in the legal field, purely legal, nothing, nothing to do with libertarians except that it was geared towards using legal mechanisms to protect – Property rights. So it was a practical way to use the legal system of international and municipal law to protect private property rights. So it's a practical thing. It's sort of like going to a tax lawyer or a drug lawyer or a, you know, a defense lawyer to protect your rights. Um, anyway, that's just one of my hats. Uh, it was a little hat. So I found time because I found lawyers to help me. I used my connections to find lawyers who I thought it could benefit their careers, and I could get this book out. It wasn't really so much for my benefit just to get this book out that would I thought benefit other people and advance the scholarship in this arena that I'm interested in. Anyway, that's a little tangent, but just one of the things I find of interest, and that enriches my life, and um, I've, I've, I found the legal – the legal career for me is a home pad like has has helped me as as a libertarian i think of myself as a libertarian to be honest well i'm a family man i'm a father i'm a husband i'm just a, a citizen of the world but i think of myself as a as a as a as a, as a libertarian but as a, a lawyer being a lawyer has helped me ground that and use that to be useful as a libertarian that's how I think of things. Not to digress from what our topic would have been. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I mean, one one of the reasons why I do this show, too, is I guess it's kind of been a video or an audio diary of my career because I started in my first year of law school. And so for myself, at least, it's been kind of a diary of sorts, a very public diary, <laughs> I guess you could say. Right. Um, right. But so were you kind of. I, I I've never practiced in the field of IP, but are you are you participating in like arbitrations or mediations more so? Do you have any courtroom time? Uh, my courtroom time is very sparse. Uh, I've I've done some litigation support, and I've done a few um, uh, depositions and been in courtrooms um, as backup. But no, I've I've not really been much of a litigator. I've done more of the prosecution. And the pleadings and the uh, the opinion work and things like that. So I've been more of a paper pusher, as some people denigrate it. Um, you know, probably because they have an insecurity complex. Um, paper pushers. You know, people that can't push paper usually denigrate people that push paper. Right. <laughs> I find. Yeah. Well. Um. Yeah. I mean, it 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 takes all kinds, and if like um, I I don't know. I've just I can appreciate that because it's like, um, would you say it's more or less stressful? I mean, you've been around in the field for quite some time. I guess it's all subjective. 
yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think everyone has their own opinions. I don't, I'm not that opinionated about all these things. I think everyone is in their own, um, their own lane and they do what they do. Um, um, I think people tend to gravitate towards their own specialty area. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a prosecutor basically. And prosecutor doesn't mean like a public prosecutor working for the state prosecuting criminals. That's a that's a term of art, which means uh, I'm I'm a patent prosecutor, which means I talk to inventors and engineers, and I listen to them and interview them, and I understand their in- inventions. So I'm the interface between technology. And engineering and science and law and regulations and the government, and I file the paperwork with the government and go back and forth with them to get a patent. That's what prosecution is called. I don't know why it's called that, but it is called that. I mean I do know why, but it from for the average person's point of view, it's, it doesn't matter. That's what the word is, is prosecution. But it, it means – it means it's paperwork to the average point of view. It's it's very similar to when you go to your tax law, when you go to your CPA and you give them your pile of documents to file your taxes for this year. They know how to take that pile of data and give it to the IRS so that you get your taxes done. Now, to the average person, it's, it's mind-numbingly boring, but it's a skill. Now… Patent work is a little bit like that, although it's a little bit less boring in the sense that every invention is unique. And if you're a dork and a geek and a tech guy like some patent lawyers kind of are, um, you can find ways to make it interesting. Um, if you're interested in the law like I am, you might get bored by that part of it. So it's just a job like any other. After a while, you, you know, I mean after 10 years of doing patent work… I kind of got bored with that part of it because it's mundane. It's one invention after the other. Yeah, every detail is interesting, but I kind of got bored with the routine aspect of it. Yeah, I know how to go through the ropes and talk to an inventor and get the details and file it and talk to the examiner to the patent office and persuade him to do A, B, or C. But it's it's a rote job, and that might or might not be challenging. It's decent pay. It can be better or worse depending upon what you do. If you do litigation, it could be more or less. It's, it's higher risk or lower risk or whatever. So yeah, it's, it's just a career like any other. Uh, what's interesting to me is how these people as lawyers or as functionaries within the system view themselves as cogs in the machine. Some of them are quite happy to view themselves as cogs in the machine. Some of them – are not um, – they're not self-aware at all. They just are cogs in the machine, and they don't even know it. And they don't care like, like most people, which I find refreshing because at least they're not grandiose about it. Some of them are a little bit self-conscious about it, and they used to be the hotshots in school because they knew a little bit more about calculus and math than the average person. But now they're not hotshots anymore. They're just some… You know, washed washed over ex engineer who's not really even an engineer anymore. 
and they're just doing some drab job and they're making slightly more than the average and they still want to be special, but they're not, and they try to glorify it. And they, they do that by having uh, opinions. They, be, they, they become opinionated, right? So they start, they start uh, uh, shouting over people at cocktail parties by saying, uh, oh, China's stealing our IP or something like that. You know what I mean? Like they start becoming opinionated about things that they really don't know more than the average Joe about. But they think that they can say that they do because they know a little bit of the jargon. So they're just they're just fools, really. They they you know. Anyway, so I, I find I, I find a little bit of humor in observing this this sort of this play, you know, this role playing that people do. Um, and if I'm a little bit deeper on it than some of them are, or I've thought about more, and then I can come in and pop their bubble sometimes, it's even funnier to see them, you know, scurry. Because if, you know, if you can say, well, then what about this and this and this? And then, because most laymen that they're talking about don't even know what they're talking about. So they can like pretend like they're the great genius, but they just, they're just like using. A couple of big words, right? To pretend like they're the great, the great expert. It, re- it really it's sort of like the guy at the. It's like the guy at the bar, right? Who's like pretending to be the expert to to impress the ditzy the ditzy blonde, you know? Yeah. To get laid or something, you know? It's 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 sort of it's sort of pathetic. Well, it really seems like the legal field is one that's very wrought with ego. I'm sure that you found that. Um, I suppose so. I suppose so. I've never been quite as cynical and negative about the legal field as opposed to any others. I think that now that I'm at this point where I think that the whole economy is sort of collapsing in this weird way, uh, I don't know what I don't know what field is good anymore. Like if I was giving advice to my 17-year-old son, what field should you go into? What's a good field anymore? Engineering, teaching, uh, you know, being an ambassador, uh, being an electrician, being a boat captain. I mean, I don't know what's a good, I don't know what's a good career anymore. Everything seems to be collapsing, you know. Has has he shown any interest in the law? Because it, it tends to run in families. Uh, sure. Sure. I mean, it's a backup because he knows he's he's well. He's probably going to be in English literature, and he knows that's what uh, I majored in. He's going to go to college, and yeah. and you know, and I he, I said, well, that's fine, but you know, if you can't get a good job in that, you might have to go to law school. Now, I did it because I found it fascinating. He might have to do it like all the other people I went to law school with who did it as a backup because they couldn't get a job. You know. Yep, that was my path. <laughs> So, seems like a hey. Let, let me st- let me step out for thirty seconds just to use the restroom. Can you hold on just yep, a second? Yep, that's fine. Uh, no, I think you reminded me. You and I talked when you were in law school. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. And I've forgotten about that, but um, because uh, my memory's bad as I get older, and I I've talked to so many people over the years, which I I like about my. 
what I like about my international sort of connections over the years and the internet and all this stuff is I've, I've made so many connections over the years. Um, uh, and I've loved the law. I loved, I loved going to law school. I was an engineer. My wife was an engineer and I've loved my legal career. I, I probably in retrospect would have done a few things differently if I'd had some guidance, um, from someone like me, um, differently, but we, you know, we, we step on the shoulders of, of, of our generations ahead of, uh, before us and they only know. And, you know, I think up until now, I don't know about you and your generation, but, you know, I did better than my dad and he did better than his and so on. I, you know, my wife and I have done so well, it's my child will do very well, I'm sure. But it's unlikely he will do better than we did because we did so well. But and partly also because the world is crumbling in a weird in a weird way. So we sort of hit the golden age in the weird peak in this in the in the seventies, eighties, nineties, you know. Um, so I don't know what's happening with the world, but I love law. But we're the type. I think we're actually really good parents. I mean, we're we were engineers. I was a lawyer engineer. But we're not like pushing our kid to do what we did, except that it makes sense. But we're telling our kid he can do whatever the hell he wants. It's just make sure you think about what's going on in the world. Um, so he's he's. I mean, I'm not pushing him to be a lawyer, go to LSU like I did. I mean, he's probably going to go to Brown or somewhere in the Northeast if he can get in. He's a white male, so you know he's got that going against him. You know the way the world is. Um, you know, being smart is not enough anymore, <laughs> like it used to be. Yeah. Um, so. Well, in that's the way the world is. Interesting enough, I was just thinking: um, Have you ever given an interview like this before? Most people want to just talk about your works. I'm sure. It's it's funny they they tend to diverge because I'm I'm good at unintentionally deflecting the subject but um people I don't know uh sometimes they sometimes they touch on some of these topics but uh, I did it, I actually interviewed Tom Woods one time I asked him about a year ago I said hey because I'm, my kid is 17 and he's and I said Tom I'm really curious how did you get into Harvard <laughs> so he he consented to let me interview him on how he got into Harvard, and it ended up you know because I went to LSU because that was I was from that milieu and I was curious and you know Tom is a little bit clueless because he was from fifteen seventeen years ago when you could get into Harvard if you were reasonably bright you know I don't think Tom could get into Harvard right now either you know it's not enough I mean all these schools now. My, this is my impression as a as a despondent parent of a bright of a bright white young male, right? I mean, he's top one percent in the country in terms of SAT, but that's that that means nothing now because these schools have have lots of sixteen hundred SAT kids applying. They accept five percent five percent get in, and their criteria is all over the map. It's all this diversity, granola crunchy. You know, LGBTQ. Yeah, it's all. It's it's everything is, and plus the whole Lori Laughlin crap has ruined it. And then there's 
legacy crap. You have to be connected. We're not connected. We're from nowhere. We're like John Galters, you know. Okay, so we don't have that stuff. We're not legacy people. We're we're nouveau riche. Okay, so fine. Sorry, sorry, we made it on our own. We're from the south. We made it on our own. So we're not we're not like Brahmins. We didn't come in on the fucking Mayflower, you know. Whatever. Sorry. Um, and uh, we don't have you know we're not Hispanic and black and we we don't we're not missing a limb and we're not poor, you know. So we like. I'm not complaining, but you know we don't have any of the the problems, and we're not immigrants, and you know, and there's no diversity problem. You know, we're not tra- transitioning from whatever to whatever, and it's all random. And plus, there's COVID, so like everything is, and, and plus Biden's about to come in and socialize everything and make it all free. And forgive everyone's debts, and it's all uh, – and there's wildfires everywhere, and there's gaz- gazelles running back and forth and chasing the people back up into the trees. It's like everything is crazy right now. There's no jobs anyway, so it's like who knows what, and everyone's saying, oh, you shouldn't go to college anyway. You should go work for Amazon or go to – you know. Praxis and yeah, it's like no one knows what's what anymore. Uh, so the whole thing is crazy. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, people like us who live in these neighborhoods and that have professional careers and send their kids to these schools, we're all like, you can keep talking your talk, but. Our kids are going to college. <laughs> you know, it's like you can keep saying what you're gonna say, but you know. So I don't know. I don't know. Well, I was I was watching your interview with Keith Knight. I think that was a few weeks ago, and it seems like you you have some some place for optimism. I mean, maybe this this ties into legislation and the discovery of law in a free society. But I mean, do you do you ever see? The possibility of of something that you describe like a free market legal system emerging anytime soon. You you had mentioned three D um, printing. That's an interesting thing. So I, I I mean I guess I'm to the point. Uh, look, I'm a libertarian, and I've always been since I've been a modern human or an adult. Um, I see no choice because I, I am. That's it's like saying. Uh, I believe the world is round. I can't believe it's flat because I don't believe it's flat. You couldn't pay me to believe it's flat. So I'm a libertarian because I'm I believe in liberty and that's just the way I believe. Optimism is just my congenital sort of view of the world. I guess if things get bad enough, I would I would I mean, you're going to die at some point. Things could get horrible. I I do think right now I'm terrified of Biden winning. Um, my my one hope is that look, I've been my adult life has been since I think of my adult life is since Reagan. Okay, I became an adult. My first election was Reagan's second term, nineteen eighty four. My first ele- my first vote was Reagan. That's the first time I voted was Reagan eighty four. First time I voted was Reagan, Republican, and I voted Libertarian ever since. Um, 
but so I've in my life I've had Reagan and then Bush one, and then I had Clinton for eight years, and then I had Bush, if I'm remembering Bush for eight years, and then I had Obama for eight years, and then I've had Trump, you know, all these things, and you know, I've hated the Democrats and all this stuff, but my life has gotten better every fucking year. I've gotten richer every year. So in a sense, as a libertarian, that I've been a libertarian. So in a sense, I sort of think that my libertarian view has has been borne out that it doesn't matter. But there's really not a big difference between libertarian the, the the Republicans and the and the and the and the and the Democrats. Like they're basically the same. They're in the background. They're basically the same. They're like twenty eight percent taxes, thirty four percent taxes, forty three percent tax, whatever they are. They're kind of in the background. They're sticky. They hamper innovation. They hamper societal development. But we can pr- prosper despite them. And we we have and we will. We can live our lives despite them if we just are smart and we we aware that the, we're aware that they're there. Um. And I'm, I guess I'm a little bit hopeful that even if Biden wins this time, maybe that will go on. Maybe he'll just be another Clinton. Maybe he'll just be another Obama. But I'm afraid I, in my in my heart, I'm afraid that that's not going to happen this time. I'm not afraid of Biden or Harris. I think I think those two are just mainstreamers. But I'm afraid that the leftist cabal has finally gotten out of the you know. It's not them. It's that they're they're being controlled by forces beyond their control. Like capitalism has succeeded so far beyond the wildest dreams of the people that don't understand it that we have so much prosperity and so much power that they will be used by these idiots who don't understand it that they will just use it to destroy it, right? They're going to unleash the Green New Deal. They're going to have universal free free universities. They're going to have socialized medicine. They're going to have they're going to kill. Uh, they're going to have um, they're going to they're going to they're going to uh, tax. They're going to they're going to uh, tax uh, inherit. They're going to increase inheritance taxes. They're going to radically increase. You know. The income tax. Uh, they're just going to kill the economy. They're going to kill everything. They're going to. They're going to. They're going to increase the Democratic majority forever with Puerto Rico and with DC and with the supermajority in the legislature and with the Supreme Court packing and with all their shenanigans, which I think has been inevitable ever since we've had democracy and ever since the 1964 Immigration Act, which Pat Buchanan has been warning us about. To me, this is all inevitable. It's just the inevitable. It's what you get with democracy. I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised we ended this. Trump was just a last gasp. You know, it's coming. Even if Trump wins this last time, it's just it's just four years, eight years, twelve years, temporary reprieve. I'm really worried. I just thought that if Trump could win, maybe we could stave these parasites off for four years, eight years, twelve years, and the free market, the internet, 
cryptocurrency, something could gain a foothold and overcome the, you know, and and just overtake it enough to allow freedom to persevere. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what to think. I, I'm hopeful that the long run of humanity will survive but in in the short run no i don't have any um i don't have any hope i just think the technology will keep imp- improving and that will keep keep us it will keep giving us benefits that will that will outweigh the the, the cost that the government keeps imposing on us so maybe we'll keep you know having one little benefit that will compensate for what the government keeps pushing on us so maybe for the next 30 40 years we'll have one thing that the free market gives us and technology gives us you know in compensation for well so um i mean kind of tying that in do you see a way that at some point maybe the the government systems like the government monopolized court systems will become so inefficient and so, I mean, for instance, so we, the courts have just started in this area resuming jury trials. And is there at some point, do you think that litigants are going to decide, hey, we're not going to wait two or three years through some costly civil litigation process and then just have a jury trial postponed for six or nine months? You know, this idea of certainty that you talk about in your paper do you ever see litigants turning to some kind of a privatized court system? I mean, you, you kind of have it with ADR a little bit, but. I think that um, I think that processes like that happen gradually over time and imper- imperceptibly, and I, I don't think that you can steer it really. Um, it's like Uber. Like Uber did happen as an innovation. Um, you couldn't have predicted how it happened though right um so yeah i do i do think that over time people respond to the fact that um they just know what works and they know what is impractical and these incentive structures worm their way into the fabric of life, right? And you know, when there's a big problem in the world that someone needs to come up with a solution, they're going to propose the system that everyone sort of knows has been working for a while, right? Um, and they're going to they're going to use the one that's been working. And so, yeah, I think people are going to start resorting to these alternative resolution mechanisms they'll just use workarounds um i don't think it's it, there's any short term response i just think that you know i live in a rich neighborhood here in houston texas you know america is a rich country i live in a rich state i live in a rich neighborhood in a rich state and even i i had a little problem i called the cops they didn't respond. It was it's all bullshit. Everyone knows this. So what do you do? You do something else instead. You know, I, I call a, a private company and I build a lock. Or maybe I hire a 
private company, or maybe I move into a neighborhood that has a private security company that does a patrol or something like that. So over time, people adopt mechanisms that work around the problems that they sense and that they see, right? I mean, I, I think, I mean, just last night, I mean, my wife, who's not into all this stuff, she said that she heard that, like, in New York City, New York City, there all these companies are hiring these private armed security companies to patrol the streets because of the elections coming up uh, Tuesday, I guess. Now, this is a one-time kind of thing, maybe. But why are they doing this? Because they sense that there's a danger of looting, violence, insurrection, because of unrest, because of possible chaos, unrest after the uncertainty, after the results of the election results on Tuesday, presidential election. Um and damage to their customers and their customers' property, right? In New York. And so they're marshalling their forces. Things like this happen. I mean, why should they have to do this? They're, they're supposed to be the, the richest city and the richest country in the world. Why should they have to do this? But they're doing it. So, of course, natural, naturally, things like this will happen. And the police will stand back, and they'll let them do it because they don't want to get shot, and the law will naturally accommodate. Now, <laughs> what has it to do with my paper, which was supposed to be the topic of this talk, which it doesn't have to be, <laughs> but let, let's talk quickly about that, So, yeah. which is one of the earliest – so uh, my book is coming out hopefully in the next few months. And this paper will be probably the earliest or one of the earliest published ones in that book. Um, so it was a paper in 1996, I think, um, in the JLS, Journal of Libertarian Studies. Um, and it's called Law and Legislation in a Free Society or something like that. Yep. Forgotten the title. Well, the Legislation and the Discover or Legislation and the Discovery of Law in a Free Society. Yep. Right, yeah, and I did like a summary version for for the for the for the Freeman uh, for the Freeman, which is the the foundation for economic education's journal at the time. Um, and what inspired me was I was learning at the time about you know Hayek's um, um, work inspired by Mises, right, which was. His work on why socialism can't function, right? Which was why a centrally planned economy can't work, right? Which was the idea of why you need to have private property rights and you need to have a price system which is organically formed by a free market where people haggle and negotiate based upon their private property rights and all that kind of stuff, and why if you have a centrally planned economy with a bureaucratic system um, where prices are just dictated, well, there's no prices. It's just like you know a command economy. Um, it's just going to be inefficient, and you're going to have shortages 
and um, people won't be satisfied. They won't get what they need. And, um, you'll have inefficiency. And you won't have economy, basically. It's impossible, as Mises said. And so Hayek kind of made an analogy to this, and there's a, there's a legal theorist in – in Italy, there was – he died early in the, in the – I think in, in the 40s named Bruno Leone. He wrote a, a classic work called Freedom and the Law where he tried to apply some of Hayek's insights to the law. It's called Freedom and the Law, and he said that, well, there's an analogy to the law where if you centrally plan the law, by which he meant legislation, like if you make the law – by having a group of bureaucrats or legislators make the law, you're going to have similar inefficiencies or problems in making the law that you have when you try to plan the economy centrally. So that was what caught my attention, and that's caught the attention of lots of um, Austrian economic thinkers and law and economics thinkers. And that sort of caught my interest, and that's what led me to write my article um, in the JLS, um, and that's actually one part of my article that I've sort of – I won't say recanted, but I, I think I made a slight mistake on – well, I didn't make the mistake. I think Leone made the mistake, uh, or they led me down to my mistake, but that's the one part I think I, I, I took too much of the analogy part on, but the rest of it is correct. Like there's lots of problems with – the, the, the very concept or the idea of making law by legislation, or to put it another way, there's a, there's a problem that we have in society now where we identify law as being what's made by the legislature as leg legislation or statute. We think of law as legislation. That's what we think of laws now, or even as contract as being what's written down. People think of contract as as a written something you write down. They think of as things you write. They they think of they think of law as written down words. That's basically a fundamental error in thinking about what law is. And that leads to all sorts of mistakes, um, and it's not just analytical mistakes about you know, kind of like law professors sitting down in their chairs analyzing law, trying to correct mistakes here and there, make it better. But it leads to mistakes in giving uh, permission to those in charge of making the law to let them have more and more power. To do what they want to do. Well, even that term "lawmaker" is just emblematic of of the problem, right? I think. Well, I was grabbing. I have that book, "Freedom in the Law." It's well, it's backwards right. on screen, but um, yeah, it's a great work. And I, I wanted to ask you, you know, there's a myriad of questions that um, I had come up with, but. In, in terms of this, this problem of certainty and the fact that the legislature can just jump in and change the law, and most of the yeah. common critiques that you'll hear, I mean, that I heard in law school of the common law is, well, 
oh, the common law is slow to change and it can't adapt to anything. And uh, it's hard to disseminate the common law rules. Um, But on the contrary, take, for instance, in Wisconsin, there's this concept called the statute of repose. And just for those who aren't aware, it's the period of time there are structural defects. And if someone builds a building or a structure and there's structural defects, there's an exposure period. And the exposure period after that period of time, you can't sue for personal injury that happens on that property. Um, so after after 10 years, if a structure has been negligently constructed, and if after 10 years someone trips and breaks their leg on it, you can't sue the the person who constructed the building or the homeowner's insurance or what have you. Well, the legislature a few years ago took that period and reduced it from 10 to 7 years. And that you know, there's no there's no demand for that aside from just the whims of the lobbyists and the legislature or when the for instance, here's another one in Wisconsin, um, informed consent, the standard for informed consent of what a doctor has to tell you before you get a procedure performed. A few years ago, the legislature in Wisconsin changed that from what a patient would want to hear was the standard. They changed it to what any other doctor would find you have the doctor would have to tell. So those are just, I mean, just two examples. I hope I'm explaining that clearly. So the standard, the, the informed consent standard was what a reasonable patient would want to hear. They changed it to what any reasonable doctor would tell the patient. That just wreaks havoc, you know? Well, I mean, so, and we could argue about, so here's a problem. We can argue about what the, what the standard should be, what the law should be. But the question is, what should law be? Right? So when you have this idea that it's malleable and that law should be whatever – look, I always go back to this quote. I'm always amazed. Like I always quote this quote by this great lawyer from 18 – let me find it – 1880. I think it's 1884. Um, I'm always amazed that people are more impressed by it than I am. Um, it's the idea of what law should be. Okay, so like when we talk about the word law, law is a general term, right? So we talk about moral law, the law of physics, like the law of gravity. Like so, law means like a regular occurrence, right? Something that's regular, like the law of God, like all these things, right? We never think of it as something that you can just announce and it changes, right? Now, we do think God can make the law, but even then we sort of think it's like something that's eternal, like it's like an eternal good. You know what I mean? Hold on a second. Um, I got to find this for you here. You probably know it already. You might be selling me too highly. (laughs) Yeah, you've probably heard this before. Hold on. Yeah, okay. So there was this is a, I've got this in my errata for my uh this one advantage of my slight familiarity with technology. When I publish my book, I'm going to have like a link 
for like you can go here for any updates I want to come up with from time to time. Um, so in 1884, okay, like after the Civil War in New York, there was an effort to codify. Now I'm from Louisiana, which is a civil law, the only civil law state in the Union. Civil law means the continental law, the French law, the Spanish and French law. Um, the rest of the U.S., the, 40, the other 49 states are common law, English common law basically. Um, the, US, uh, the, the Louisiana system remained kind of civil law, which is the, based on the, Rom the Roman law and the European continental civil law, um, which is codified based upon the, 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 the – basically think of it as the Napoleonic uh, uh, civil code. Um, now, in some of the states in the U.S., they their system has been influenced more or less by the the the, the Spanish and the French system, like uh, 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 California and Texas, to some degree have a Spanish influence in their code. So they have like a uh, uh, they have a what do you call it in the in the marriage where there's a um, oh God, I'm forgetting the term now. Where the the husband and wife have a community property, yeah, um, which I think actually makes sense because I'm probably influenced by that from Louisiana. Um, anyway, um, and there's been an effort in some states to codify. Now, to me, I'm not opposed to codification. Codification means you have a sort of a group of legal scholars come together and they they have a code. They, they codify the the private law or the common law that's been developed in the state. Now, in some states, that has that's resulted in the ALI efforts, the American Law Institute efforts, the 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 restatements of the law, which I think are beautiful efforts at codifying the law. Now, I, I bring this up because you mentioned earlier that there has been some criticism of the common law that it's hard for people to understand. It doesn't adjust to the times, which is completely false because the common law does adjust to the times, and it is easy for people to understand because private scholars and private institutes can codify it by the – by private restatements and things like that, right? That's what Blackstone was. That's what Coke was. That's what the ALI is and things like that, and they're not always legislatively reenacted by a legislature. They just – it's just some privately respected group of scholars who say we think this is the best restatement of the currently existing body of you know, court cases that have so far developed the law. I mean – it's, it's not that complicated. Anyway, in 1884 in New York, there was an attempt to codify the common law. Now, codifying it is not a problem, but they wanted to codify it and then have the legislature and then enact it as a, as a, as a, as a law, right? So it would be a statute. And so this, this common law lawyer you know, rejected this attempt. His, so it was David Dudley Field who wanted to legislatively codify the common law. And this guy, James Carter, opposed it, and he had this speech where he opposed it. So here's what he said. I'm going to read this one paragraph. He said, at present, when any doubt arises in any particular case, 
as to what the true rule of the unwritten – and this is my comment, i.e. the judge found or the common law developed okay, law. That is, the, the unwritten law is. It is at once assumed that the rule most in accordance with justice and sound policy is the one which must be declared to be the law. The search is for that rule. The appeal is squarely to be made to be to the highest considerations of morality and justice. These are the rallying points of the struggle. The contention is ennobling and beneficial to the advocates, to the judges, to the parties, to the auditors, and so indirectly to the whole community. The decision is then made records another step to the in the advance of human reason towards that perfection after which it forever aspires. But when the law towards that perfection after which it forever aspires, I'm sorry, but when the law is conceded to be written down in a statute, and the only question is that with what the statute means, a contention unspeakably inferior is, is substituted. The dispute is now about words. The, the question of what is right or wrong, just or unjust, is irrelevant and out of place. The only question is what has been written. What a wretched exchange for the manly encounter upon the elevated plane of principle. Anyway, so I love that comment because what he's pointing out is that if you – if you if you think of law as what is announced by a committee of bureaucrats, right, and blessed by the legislature, then it's just what the words mean, right? It's not about what's just or just or unjust or fair or unfair. So that's why this whole thing with Amy Coney Barrett was so telling. It's like she, what she was saying was, listen, I'm just a judge. My whole job is to interpret this document, and my job is not to be the – basically what she was saying was my job is not to be a judge. My job is to just interpret words, but the assumption was that the, 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 the document that I'm interpreting is just, that we're all taking that for granted. Like we're all Americans holding our our hands on our hearts, assuming that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are all good things, and we're all going to go into this with that presupposition. No one's going to challenge that, right? So, <clears throat> and so I think that I think John Hersani had this column in the Wall Street Journal or something there to saying that the real problem that the opponents of Amy Coney Barrett and the opponents of originalism, the problem that they have is they don't like the Constitution because it's the Constitution that opposes their progressive agenda. Right? That's the problem that they have. They don't like the Constitution because it does pose a barrier to their socialist agenda. That is probably true. So the problem is not with Amy Coney Barrett or an honest constitutionalist or originalist. Their problem is with the Constitution. Sorry, I'm on a tangent. But, no, no, I, I, um, um, I've had all these feelings and these thoughts about the the whole thing myself. I mean, 
Do you, do you feel that that uh, conservatives? I prefer uh, conservative jurists and, um, and textualism, originalism. But do you think they operate in some kind of a, a space where they? It's impossible for they act like they are imp- not really impartial, but they act like they're just calling balls and strikes, as it were. Um, but that's not um, what judicial review is. Here's what I th- here's what I think. I think that if we had a Soviet constitution, I would not prefer an originalist judge because they would be interpreting an evil constitution. Okay. But because our constitution happens to be more libertarian in substance than a Soviet one, I want an originalist judge. However, having said that, number one, I don't think our constitution is perfectly libertarian, so I'm okay with violating the constitution when it's not libertarian. Okay, that's number one. And number two… I do agree partly with with um, with uh, with John Hasness, who has a great article. It's a classic article called "The Myth of the Rule of Law," which everyone should look up and read. It's John Hasness is one of these guys who's written like three articles, and all of them are classics. Like he's unlike me and other people who've written like seventeen thousand articles, and only like two of them are worth reading. He's written like three, and all of them are worth reading. You know, <laughs> he's like one of these guys who likes. He, he's got a very small output, but everything he's written is worth reading. Um, I'm probably exaggerating, but it's something like that. Um, but the myth of a rule of law is incredible, and he he basically takes the side of the critical legal studies or the critical movement, and he he adopts it to a degree, and he says that they're basically correct. At least insofar as they apply it to um, these artificial documents like the Constitution and legislation, and I actually agree with them. I I don't quite agree so much when it comes to the common law and organic law. So I don't quite agree that organically developed law like the common law is as – is as indeterminate as the crits would say. Um, I do agree that statutory law, which uh, in which I would include the Constitution to some degree, um, and legislation, I do think that that's totally arbitrary law, and that um, and that when these judges pretend to be textually interpreting it or interpreting it by its original meaning, I do think that, that, that there's lots of leeway to it. So the judges, when they pretend to be just interpreting it by its original meaning, um, they pretend that there's a neutral interpretation that there's often not. That said, I still think that they should endeavor to do that like Scalia and his type would try to do, Okay, and they should try as judges. But I still think that the original uh, the unique position of the american federal government is that they are not a common law government and they don't have plenary police power or legislative power and therefore the the role of the federal courts in the american system is a unique and weird one 
and that the goal and the purpose of the federal judiciary in the American scheme is not to do justice, unfortunately. Uh, the role of, of judges in the state courts in American government is different. I think that the, their, their job to the extent that they're in, interpreting common law cases and criminal cases, they, they, their job can be to try to do justice. Okay. Um, um, and in, in certain cases, if you have to do, uh, if you have to interpret a case where you have no choice but to do something unjust, you can just resign. But in the case of the federal government, they're basically doing nothing but interpreting unjust, unconstitutional, immoral, uh, an immoral web of purely statutory law. Which has almost nothing to do with justice in almost every case. So they're basically bureaucrats. I think that federal judges are basically not really judges, and they're not doing law. So I don't think what federal judges do is law. They're smart people. They're using the the, the, the language. They're going through the motions, but they're not really judges because they're not trying to do justice. They can't do justice. They're They're interpreting words written down on paper. By Congress, you know, the closest they get to it is the Constitution, which does have some justice principles because a lot of them were written down in codified form from the English traditions that they tried to emulate to some degree. But even that was a committee decision from Philadelphia in 1787. So that's my take. I think the whole thing is a bastardization of law. Definitely. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And um, well, well, we're going to have to revisit this. I really want to be respectful of your time. Um, but I'm really glad that we were able to do this interview. And I've been, I've been trying to get up the courage to ask you for an interview for quite some time. But we'll have to do it again because there's a ton more questions that I have for you. Um, but thanks again for joining happy to, me. Be happy to do it. Be happy to do it. Awesome. Um, well, thanks again. And uh, as a last plug, where can my listeners find your your content? Oh, just stephankinsella.com. Okay. All right. Well, sounds great. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And until next time.